Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Labor Day, September 7, 2020, as the Chicago White Sox are coming off another sweep of the Kansas City Royals. They finished the season series against the Royals winning 9 out of 10 games, which is amazing to say after all the headaches the Royals have given the White Sox over the years. And the White Sox are still in first place of the American League Central with a 26-15 and 15 record. Just five more wins and guaranteed winning record, baby. As a matter of fact, the White Sox moved past Oakland in the playoff standings and are currently the second seed behind the Tampa Bay Rays. All of that is good news, great news. But every time something good happens, a little bad news is mixed in. Aaron Bummer was put on the 45-day injured list, which means most likely he will not be returning this regular season. After that was announced, Chase Fry is on the 10-day injured list. And Dallas Keuchel was pulled at 49 pitches on Sunday because of back tightness. We'll take a look at the White Sox pitching staff and see who else could help out as the team gets ready for their final sprint of the season. Also on this show, we'll have one of our best friends stop by. It's Jim Callis of MLB.com as MLB Pipeline updated their top 100 prospect list and their White Sox new top 30 prospects. We'll discuss Luis Roberts' first year in the majors and to see if he has another level of performance he can reach and which White Sox prospects interest Jim. 
For those that are Patreon supporters, you are getting 15 extra minutes with Jim on this episode as he'll also break down for our Patreon supporters why Garrett Crochet is in the top 100 and not Jared Kelly. At the end of the show, we'll answer your questions in P.O. Socks. But first on this episode... I like to discuss what I think is a fun topic. If you were voting for the American League MVP, which White Sox player would you give your first place vote to? Joining me to chat about this and much more is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. A 26-15 and 15 White Sox team that currently sits in first place in the American League Central and as the second seed is naturally going to spark MVP conversations for certain individuals. And I have to say, this is a lot of fun to think about. Yeah, the leaderboard, uh, I think there's baseball reference showing that the White Sox at one point held the top three spots. That is very refreshing. When has <laughs> and, that and... ever happened, do you think? Has that ever happened? Hmm. For any team. I'm sure it's never happened for the White Sox, but for yeah. any team in baseball history... To say, according to war, that they had the top three players. Maybe like the Ruth Gehrig Yankees. Yeah, so we're going back to... That jumps to to mind, but... 93 years ago? Yeah, maybe like (laughs) some of the Dodgers teams with Koufax when he was running up the score. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about all-time great teams. The teams we still talk about today. Yeah, well, yeah, all-time great teams in like a much smaller league to where he had fewer teams splitting up the vote, you know, when he had uh, eight teams per league versus... Good point. Uh, 15. So yeah, it seems like it would take one of those teams in order to have that kind of uh, dominance, but it's possible I could be missing, missing an obvious one, but right now those, you know, the, the, the consolidation of power is pretty impressive. And yeah, the, the White Sox, especially the way they're doing it, not with the typical projection uh, beasts that are normally, you know, top the list, like Mike Trout and Mookie Betts and so forth. They're doing with guys who are more Babic or Babic or batting average or, you know, slugging percentage, pure slugging, not really guys who draw a lot of walks and have a whole lot of defensive value, but they're still doing it. That's really cool. Before we make our picks, I want to take a look at how serious the candidacy is for the following White Sox players. Because as we watch the White Sox and we see them performing well, and you take 30 seconds and you look up the leaderboard for war on fan graphs and on baseball reference, You can go out and say, yeah, these guys deserve to be the MVP. But we have to remember, these are human beings, cranky baseball writers for some, that are voting for these awards. And bless James Fegan for giving Yohan Makata a 10th place vote last year. I think he deserved it, and James is right. So I will continue to defend James for that, but he caught a lot of flack in the industry for putting Yohan Mikata 10th in the MVP ballot uh, last year. But I think it's going to be a much different situation for the White Sox, especially on how other baseball writers view on these three individual White Sox players and where they rank them in their top 10. And for those that don't understand the MVP voting, it's 1 through 10, 1 being your most valuable player pick, and they get that first place vote. And then it trickles down all the way down to 10. Every MVP voter in the Baseball Writers Association will that has an American League MVP vote, that's the type of ballot that they are submitting. So again, before we make our pick on who we think has the best shot of being the American League MVP, a couple of weeks ago, 
I asked you, Jim, if Tim Anderson is the most valuable hitter in the White Sox lineup when he returned from his injury. The White Sox offense was sputtering. Anderson is back. They got back on track. That was before Jose Abreu erupted to win Player of the Week honors, having one of the best weeks ever in White Sox history. And now he leads the major leagues in RBIs. So let's start there between those two, because Anderson and Abreu are in this top three for war. Is Abreu now the most important bat in the White Sox lineup? I would still say Anderson, just because of the ability to both turn over the bottom of the order uh, the way he has, like especially like when you know, like Nick Madrigal has a good game in the ninth spot or Yolmer Sanchez, as he did on Sunday, has a good game. I think Anderson gets the party started so much faster uh, than when you know they had like say Larry Garcia batting first. Um, so I, I still think Anderson's there, but should I give my answer to the poll question now? Because I can segue into that. If you really want to, I, I was going to kind of break it down as far as the categories and their candidacy. But yeah, let's start there because then that way you can defend your pick if it's a uh, and I can let you know on how our listeners and our followers on Twitter voted. OK, I would say that for my pick, I would go with the Brayu, but only because he has played 10 more games than Anderson has. So for you, the difference is games played with such a short season. Yeah, it's basically like a quarter of the season. Uh, Abreu's covered more of it. So that's why I think there's still a difference to where, you know, Anderson, I, I looked it up there. The White Sox are 20 and 10 when he starts, which means that they're six and five when he doesn't play. So there is a definite upgrade when he's in the lineup. But, you know, I kind of look at it as, you know, the White Sox went six and five when he was out. So that means the guys who are in the lineup are doing some of the, the heavy lifting to keep them, you know, uh, their heads above water while he's out. So, I think in that case, you know, if Abreu's played basically every game but one this year, and with the with availability being so key this season, I think that plays an outsized part in my thinking, so I'm going to go with Abreu first. Okay, so you are having Jose Abreu as your pick. Yes. Our, our Twitter poll, so 975 votes, and Jose Abreu crushed 74% picked Jose Abreu. That's who they would give their first place vote to. Now, I want to look at some key stats here for Tim Anderson to make the case for Tim Anderson. Tim Anderson came at second at 18%. When it comes to batting average, Tim Anderson has a very healthy lead in batting average in the American League. Uh, over 20 points ahead of Nelson Cruz. He's currently batting 351, so he's got a chance to win his second straight batting title in the American League. Trey Turner leads the major leagues right now, batting 365. Runs scored. He is second with 34. He's got one run scored fewer than Mike Trout, who's at 35. Tim Anderson's played six fewer games than Trout. So Anderson's got a chance to pass Mike Trout to lead the American League in runs scored. When it comes to Fangraph's war, and this is before Sunday's game, he was at 1.9, which was third in the American League behind Mike Trout and Anthony Rendon. And in Baseball Reference War, he was also 1.9, third behind Luis Robert and Jose Abreu. This is where it starts getting fascinating. Weighted runs created plus at OPS plus. So the ability for this player to generate runs compared to league average. Anderson is at a weighted runs created plus of 176. He's 76% better than league average. 
That's third in the American League, Jim, behind Nelson Cruz and Mike Trout. Nelson Cruz is at 180. Mike Trout is at 179. You can make the case that Tim Anderson offensively has been as strong as Nelson Cruz and Mike Trout. That I don't think I would have ever said (laughs) about Tim Anderson in his career. Since we've been talking about Tim Anderson since he's joined the White Sox back in 2016. That's just an incredible transformation uh, that he's came. OPS Plus, he's also third. Again, behind Nelson Cruz and Mike Trout. His OPS Plus is 174. He's 5 for 5 in stolen bases. And he's made 5 errors, which fans will say that's why he won't win the MVP. Four of them are fielding, only one throwing. Last year, he led the major leagues with 26 errors at the shortstop position, 13 fielding, 13 throwing. He's made drastic changes, and he's throwing the ball a lot better from his position, and he's nowhere close to leading shortstops and errors this season. So that, I think, is Tim Anderson's MVP candidacy as far as his resume, that for someone at the shortstop position that is trailing barely behind the sluggers and Nelson Cruz and Mike Trout. And he is the leadoff hitter for maybe the best offense in the American league. And he's looking to win his second straight batting title for those that don't consider Tim Anderson as a serious MVP candidate. I strongly urge you to change your mind. And I know that sounds so weird to, to say Jim aloud, Mm -hmm. But I think Tim Anderson's got a really strong case at this point. No, well done. I mean, that's that's a really good case. Yeah, the, right now with this particular snapshot, the thing I just keep coming back to is if we're talking about like a 162 game season, he would be playing 120 games, and that I think is just like a little bit too uh, too small of a chunk. That leaves too many games left to you know theoretically replacement level players picking up the slack for him. So that's why. You know, at this particular juncture, I would just not be inclined to give him the edge over Abreu, who would be on like a 160 game pace. However, you know, if they both are healthy the remainder of the season and Anderson doesn't miss a game or maybe he's, you know, sits one for normal rest purposes, but is not uh, absent and uh, is there the rest of the way and plays, you know, in the high 40s or something like that, then I would be inclined to tilt it his way, assuming that the, you know, performances stay level. And I I certainly hope they do. One thing I noticed about Anderson too, is that he's doubled his walk rate. So he's never going to be like a guy who, you know, draws a ton of walks, but now he's out of that sub 3% range that was really making him dependent on just all the luck on betting average on balls in play and is actually being more of a well-rounded threat. He should have drawn a walk on a uh, on Sunday, but Ryan Blakeney, who I think is the worst strike zone, I think of any umpire we've seen on the circuit, <laughs> yeah. like he's reliably bad. <laughs> he, he took a walk away. You know, I think on, on the whole, it's hard to complain about the umpiring job because the White Sox benefited from a lot of breaks, but uh, that took a walk away from him that, uh, you know, he could have used just to, to, to pad that particular column, but no, he's becoming more well-rounded. As you mentioned, the defense is improving to where it's not uh, a liability. So yeah, I think he's, He's patching up, or at least he's sanding down some of his roughest edges to make the rest of his numbers really, really shine. Yeah, Anderson, the maximum amount of games that he'll be playing in 2020 is 50 games because he's already missed 10 games uh, due to injury this season, which is really unfortunate. But you make a, you make a good point, Jim, that for Anderson, what's really working against him 
is that he's not going to play 60 games in 2020. All right, let's take a look at Jose Breu as far as his resume right now. He's got 13 home runs. That's currently third behind Tiascar Hernandez of the Buffalo Blue Jays. <laughs> but unfortunately for the Blue Jays, Hernandez sounds like he's going on the injured list as he got injured. Uh, and that's really unfortunate for the Blue Jays and my fantasy baseball team. Uh, and Mike Trout leads the American League. He now has 15 home runs as he's tied with Fernando Tatis Jr. for the Major League lead. But in RBIs, again, Abreu leads the Major Leagues at 40 RBIs. He's got 53 hits. That leads the American League in that category. He has scored 28 runs, which is 7th in the American League. His Fangraphs war, F war, is 1.6. That's tied for 5th in the American League. His baseball reference war before Sunday's game was 2.2, which leads the American League. I may sound a little excited to say that because this is a first baseman who is leading the American League in war, according to baseball reference, and defense really serves as an anchor for first baseman, Jim, Mm -hmm. when it comes to war. For a first baseman to lead the league in war, they have to be incredible offensively, and Abreu has done that. But speaking as far as defense, looking at defensive runs saved on fan graphs, Abreu is plus six. That leads Major League Baseball for all first basemen, Jim. Jose Abreu leads Major League Baseball in defensive runs saved at first base. Okay, that to me is insane after watching Abreu play the position since he's joined the White Sox since 2014. I wouldn't say that he was the worst defensive first baseman in the league, but I don't think I would ever think that he could be a gold glover and he's played really well at the position defensively in this short in 2020 season. But he's got the offensive numbers. He's playing really good defense. He might win the gold glove for the American League mm. at first base over Matt Olson. I think that's a good debate between those two. And the White Sox are in first place, and he's got the name recognition, Jim. Is Jose Abreu the clubhouse leader right now in the American League for MVP compared to everyone? I think he I think so just because the MVP I think is still divided the electorate between people who vote for the most productive player and people who vote for the most productive player or what they determine to be the most impactful player on a team with a winning record or a postseason appearance and so I think if the White Sox are either first place or a surprisingly strong postseason team. You know, maybe they finish second, maybe they even finish third behind the Indians and Twins, but maybe they have like three of the four best records in the American League. Uh, then I can see where they look at Abreu and say he's a big reason why the White Sox have snapped this uh, winning or this this streak of losing seasons and this long of a postseason drought. Even if it is like a a bizarre postseason with uh, new rules and everything like that, still he's still the big reason why. So yeah, I could see that being the case where they do say. Um, you know, he's the guy. We know him. It's a reward. He's finally uh, he's finally given a team that can produce around him, and he's still the same guy. So this is what he's shown to be capable of now that he's given a supporting cast worth, uh, worth its salt. Yeah, and, you know, back to Mike Trout, because you make a good point. There's going to be a lot of people who say, well, Mike Trout is doing Mike Trout thing, so Mike Trout's probably going to win the MVP. But, yeah, it's fun to talk about 
you know, Jose Abreu. I agree with you. Mike Trout is having a, another Mike Trout type of season. And it's very odd to me that when you look at Fangraph's war and you see the two angels, Rendon and Trout, lead the American League. And that team has won five straight games. So they're having a really good week. They're still 17 and 25. They're eight and a half games behind Oakland in the American League West. They are in fourth place in that division, and they're five games out of the uh, of the wild card, or at least to be the eighth seed. Like that team is still really far away from making the postseason, and thanks to Abreu and the way that he has just been hitting for the White Sox, uh, I mean, again, they're leading the American League Central, and then they're the second seed. So if you're voting today, despite Mike Trout beating out Jose Abreu in home runs, I think you got to give the award to Jose Abreu as American League MVP at this stage. And I don't think I would say that in 2020. I don't think I would ever said that after his 2014 season. Yeah, I think the the defense is going to be um, a a big and and fun argument. I don't think it's going to be, you know, it might be tiresome for some, but I I think it'll be one of those – fascinating things to watch um you know third parties debates because you know, we, we saw some uh some nice things written about Luis roberts defense and you know after the catch he made i think he uh he earns everything but uh you know Statcast uh wrote about him just saying that uh you know he's basically as good as you can expect from somebody who's going around the league for the first time and playing at major league speed and might only get a little bit better from here and, you know, they're trusting the metrics of him, especially, you know, StatCast and using outs above average and, and all the video and catch probability and stuff. They, they trust those numbers very much. And so I think if it gets to Abreu and just him being regarded as a below average first baseman, I think he was lousy for his early stretches, but then improved to be at least like, you know, he can stand there. Like, you know, there's no, no harm in playing him there. Somebody has to play first with his bat. Fine. Uh, but you know, below average, you know, uh, nobody's idea of uh, a rangy first baseman, hands not renowned. And so for him to make this kind of a uh, statistical improvement, um, it, he's going to have a lot of skeptics and not necessarily for bad reasons, because usually you want like a multi-year sample for uh, metrics, especially when you have a shortened season like this one. They might even be less trustworthy. But, you know, watching him this year, I think he's improved. He's made a lot of plays that you wouldn't expect to, if, for him to make and, and showing a bit more athleticism in life. Like <laughs> I laughed out loud when he toppled over at first, like stretching like hell to catch a Danny Mendix toss on the, the save a run. Like he's, he's, he's balling out there. I think, you know, especially relative for his abilities, he's really showing up. Well, I, I think uh, if you try to compare him against the Matt Olson, somebody with range, like I'm thinking you know, a guy who exceeded first base was Albert Pujols. Like, Prime Albert Pujols was somebody who uh, added value defensively as well as with his bat, and that's why he won MVPs. <laughs> but you know, com- you know, thinking about Abreu in those terms, it's still hard to fathom him being on that level. But I think for his physical ability and his skill set, I think he's maxing it out. I think that's fair to say. Yes. So again, Tim Anderson's got a strong MVP case, but the amount of games that he's played or the amount of games that he missed may hurt him in the end. And Jose Abreu has a strong MVP case, even with the way that Mike Trout has been playing, uh, which is incredible because Mike Trout is the game's best player in Major League Baseball. Now let's talk about the third 
candidate, the dark horse, and he's at a tight rookie of the year race, but that's Luis Robert. You mentioned as far as his defense, Luis Robert leads all center fielders in major league baseball with nine defensive runs saved. If he doesn't win the gold glove for center field, I am going to be irate, Jim. <laughs> okay, I'm going to be irate. Now, because of the way that he's playing defense, he is second in the American League in baseball reference war at two, and he's tied with Jose Abreu for fifth in the American League in Fangraph's war at 1.6. And as far as the counting stats, he's got 11 home runs. That's tied for sixth in the American League. And he's got 27 RBIs. He's tied for 10th. He's got six stolen bases, but what's going to hurt Robert is his slash line. He's batting 266 with a 333 on base percentage. And when you compare that to Abreu and Anderson, just as far as the team, that falls short. You compare it to some of the league leaders, he's not going to show up as far as the top 10. But again, this is, he's a rookie. This is his first yeah. 40 games of his Major League Baseball career. And even though... And we'll talk a little bit more about this with Jim Callis of MLB Pipeline. Even though he is hitting 266 and with an on-base percentage of 333, he is in the top five for war, either at baseball reference or fan graphs, whatever you want to use. And Jim, I feel like there could be another level of performance that he can hit. And if he hits that, we're talking Mike Trout, Mookie Betts level. I mean, this is a type of player that the White Sox, in my belief, have never had. In terms of physical ability, yes. I think uh, the one thing is just uh, in terms of for me to fathom it or expect him to get there is just the plate discipline. It's really rough right now and not not rough in a bad way. Like he makes it work for himself. It's a kind of plate discipline that you wouldn't try to export or (laughs) expect anybody to work with. Uh, it's just his, you know, massive, um, natural physical abilities combined with his ability to adjust that I think is working for him. But just when you see his first pitch, uh, you know, swing rates and, and the amount of chasing he's doing and just how he can disappear for games at a time, I think that's, what's keeping him out of that conversation right now and might be a multi-year project the way it was multi-years for, uh, uh, for Anderson, but I think he can get there. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if he turned into like a 300 hitter that also played gold glove level center field and hit 30 homers and, uh, stole 30 bases and just became that, you know, seven to nine win player that we're talking about. Even if he he doesn't quite get to like the 80 to hundred walks that maybe, you know, puts those guys on the 10 win level, but he can get there. And even if he comes up a little bit short of that, maybe if he hits like, you know, 260, 270 with a gap in his walk to strikeouts and maybe, you know, hits 25 homers instead of 30. You're still talking about like an immensely valuable player just because of the ground he covers defensively. And if he's hitting like, maybe he's never quite a true leadoff guy. Uh, yeah, maybe he bats there sometimes, but if he's like batting fifth, if he's the guy who comes in at the end of the heart of the order and tries like kind of cleans up for the cleanup hitter, <laughs> he's not somebody who keeps the rally going necessarily but as somebody who's just there if their guy's on base he's your last big bat to try to knock those guys in that's a really good lineup and uh there's nothing you can really take away from him or what he's doing so i think there are two levels he can reach where he's like you know when combined with his you know elite defense that just make him 
uh, give them such a high floor that White Sox players haven't had, like that five-win floor that's really hard for for those players to find. But yeah, if he can just refine his plate discipline a little bit uh, to where he you know maybe cuts his strikeout rate down to like the low 20%, and that's why I'm thinking like the Anderson game plan where he draws like maybe high single digits in terms of walks and low 20% in terms of strikeouts. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, the kind of guy where you're talking about like seven, eight wins regularly and all-star appearances, gold gloves, and, and being a real centerpiece of everything. Going back to what you just said, a five-war floor, that's insane, okay? With what we have had to deal with as fans for the last three years to say, yeah, this player has a five-war floor, <laughs> I was happy when guys had yeah. two war in the lineup. Yeah. And I, I think it'll take him a couple of years, but I mean, if he stays healthy, that center field defense is such that when you see what, uh, you know, good glove guys with limited bats do with that kind of defense, it just seems like he should be able to get there. I mean, he went over four on Saturday night, but he made one of the best catches I've seen in center field. It didn't rob a home run, but he covered 88 feet in 4.2 seconds and just went out, dove, and I can't, I still can't believe he made that catch. 88, he was in left center gap. He was in the left field gap and he sprinted in 4.2 seconds to cover 88 feet <laughs> of ground to make that catch. Yeah. Maybe Byron Buxton. Yeah. Is the only other center fielder in Major League Baseball that makes yeah, that Yeah, maybe Kiermaier just because of his... I don't think Kiermaier today does yeah, that. Yeah, maybe he can... Maybe he's slightly better positioned or something. But right. yeah, just the, uh, in terms of ground covered, yeah. Uh, the uh, the foot, that, <laughs> the feet that he covered in the seconds, yeah, I think it's Buxton. Yeah, both Robert and Buxton are like the only players that are covering like 30 to 31 feet per like second right now as far as distance. That's insane. That's like a 4.0 40-yard dash. I would love to watch them both run the 40-yard dash, but that's 80 grade speed, folks. If you hear us talking about scouting grades on this show, about draftees, uh, or prospects, and we say 80-grade speed, Luis Robert has 80-grade speed. He is incredible, and as I mentioned with the ballot, as far as you know, you got to rank 10 players on your ballot, I bring up Luis Robert, Jim, because I think he's going to get multiple 9th place, 10th place MVP votes this year, and I think he's going to win American League Rookie of the Year over Kyle Lewis. It's a great debate. Both of them are playing incredibly well. Uh, and there will probably be some splitting of first-place votes there. But I still expect Robert to win Rookie of the Year. I expect him to win Gold Glove in the American League as far as in the outfield. And to come away with that hardware is incredible in your rookie of your rookie season. Uh, but I do think that he is right now worth having a ninth or 10th-place vote. on. He should be on your MVP ballot. Yeah, I think he, more than any other White Sox player, has the ability to capture imaginations and get people writing. You know, people who ordinarily wouldn't care uh, a bit about the White Sox, get them raving about his individual talent. I mean, you know, I think a lot of White Sox fans are gritting their teeth watching everybody talk about Fernando Tatis Jr., but I think maybe Robert's like one year away from being that guy. I Where just, you know, the numbers are there, the numbers are great, but just the... 
the je ne sais quoi, <laughs> you know, just just the the extra something that uh, um, you know a highlight a day or at least you know like you know for a week. We're talking like that kind of level uh, that just puts him on a different level than say like Anderson, who's good but doesn't provide the defensive juice. And same thing with Abreu. Right. And, and and by the way, I've been clicking throughout uh, Baseball Reference while we've been talking just to see if there are any teams I'm forgetting. Like, I'm afraid that, like, when we talked about, like, top three finishes yeah. in, in wins above replacement, I'm just afraid that somebody is listening to the podcast, like, screaming at it, <laughs> like, saying, you forgot this team. Uh, but uh, so far, I haven't found anybody. The, the 1927 Yankees, of course, come the closest. They had four of the top five spots, but Harry Heilman snuck in at third. Uh, he had 7.1 wins above replacement uh, for Detroit. Uh, Earl Combs was 0.1 wins below him at seven. Wow. It was Ruth Gehrig, Harry Heilman, then with the Yankees, Earl Combs, and Tony Lazeri. Wow. So, but still haven't found a team. I haven't found one during the Ruth era for the Yankees. So still clicking around. But throughout this, I'm hoping to answer that question in case we just forgot one obvious team. Well, while you're doing that, another team that I thought was like the big red machine like of the the Reds of the seventies mm. with Morgan, Bench, and Rose. Okay, I will look that up. Okay, well while you do that, we had a very positive conversation about the MVP candidacy for White Sox individuals. We got to talk about some bad news because it is current events, and that's the White Sox pitching issues. Not issues so much as far as performance. The White Sox, I felt, pitched well in the four games against the Kansas City Royals. The pitching issues are health-related. Aaron Bummer has now been moved to the 45-day injured list, and I think, based on the math, Jim, I don't think he's coming back this regular season, right? Did he I do come back the last right? week of September. Last week of September, okay. So yep. my math was wrong. So there is a chance that Aaron Bummer can return. Uh, hopefully he can return, because uh, that would be good timing to get him in some action and get him into the postseason if he is healthy. Uh, but right now, there is that uncertainty that Aaron Bummer will be returning in 2020. While you get that news, Jace Fry is now placed on the 10-day injured list, which is terrible timing with how taxed this bullpen is. You're hoping that, well, maybe Carlos Rodon can help. Well, his rehab start got pushed back. Why? Back issues. Speaking of back issues, Dallas Keuchel only threw 49 pitches on Sunday. Why? His back is barking up. <laughs> The White Sox did call up Alex McCray, uh, and he pitched in the ninth inning on Sunday, and he struck out two batters and only allowed one hit and no runs, so that's a pretty good debut for Alex McCray. But when you look at the White Sox 40-man roster, the pitchers who are not hurt that are currently in Schaumburg, so the White Sox had to call up another pitcher to help out in the bullpen, you got three of them, Ronaldo Lopez, Jose Ruiz, and Ian Hamilton. So at some point, Rick Hahn's going to probably have to trim the fat, do some roster gymnastics, and try to find a way to add more pitchers to the 40-man roster to help out Rick Renteria. There could be some good news on Monday. Gio Gonzalez technically could be activated off the injured list on Monday if his groin does feel better. And if he does, then that's good. Then the White Sox had another uh, dependable arm into the bullpen uh, with Gio Gonzalez. Uh, so that does help. But again, fingers crossed that the groin does feel better. But Jim, we, we talked about this last week. What part of nobody can get hurt did the White Sox pitchers not understand? <laughs> yeah, Keuchel is the... The, the, well, 
would be the killer one. Right now he's downplaying it. He said that he had a sore back earlier in the year. It's something that kind of occasionally flares up and didn't, you know, was trying to downplay it, sound like he wasn't going to miss time. But when we talk about the White Sox this year and just the you know, idea that they're going to make the postseason, which is cool. And, and you know, it, when it comes to like the kind of bigger picture and what uh, what flaws we can overlook because they won't be part of a postseason roster or at least a postseason rotation. Uh, you know, Lopez, like for instance, like it's easy to kind of set him aside and say, well, you know, if he has a bad start, so be it. If he gets sent down to Schaumburg, so be it. Like just it's kind of running out the clock on him. Uh, running, you know, crossing off calendar days that he either started on or was supposed to start on because when at the end of September, when the postseason rolls around and you're talking about like best of threes, best of fives, best of sevens, that spot isn't going to be a part of it. It's going to be Giolito and Keuchel and Cease or maybe Dunning if Dunning ends up showing better. But I'm guessing it'll be Giolito, or a Keuchel, and then maybe a Cease with a short leash type thing. Cease on a leash. <laughs> but... uh yeah, that, uh, so when it comes to injuries, like there have been, it's been a pretty high body count, but I think the White Sox core pitching rotation, which is Giolito, Keuchel, Cease, has been largely preserved. So I think that's where the, now I maybe start to get a little bit nervous when it comes to the larger aspirations of this team, because yeah, Keuchel cannot really be lost. I I agree with you, Jim. I don't want to freak out right now because I'm in a good mood after talking about MVP candidacies. Uh, so I'm just going to play ignorance and put my head in the sand <laughs> regarding yep. this situation. Again, they're going to have Monday and Thursday off. Those are days off. He's not pitching against the Pirates. His next scheduled start is either going to be Friday or Saturday. We'll explain that when we preview the Pittsburgh Pirates series. So he's got multiple days that hopefully he can find a jacuzzi, he can get some back massages, and he can get that back into better shape. I do think, though, to preserve him and get him ready for the postseason, Renteria can't do what he did at Wrigley Field and have Keuchel throw 114 pitches. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm cool if Keuchel's limit is now 90 so they could preserve and reduce some stress on that back so he is ready to go in the postseason. Yeah, I I wonder when it comes to, um, you know, pitch count and such, like whether that'll be brought up, because um, it did seem absurd and unnecessary, <laughs> and uh, but it didn't seem like there was a direct connection between him and his uh, back, so I, I don't want to overplay it, but I think at this point, yeah, just you want to put some guys in a protective case, only bring them out in nice weather and, and ideal conditions and then put them back in and, and put them in a uh, climate controlled, humidity controlled chamber just to make sure that they don't get ruined by the <laughs> time postseason comes around. Uh, yeah, it, it's, you know, 114 isn't bad. And I wouldn't mind seeing like 114 in the postseason, especially like say if it is a bullpen that's running on fumes or if say he's getting, a, you know, not getting touched, just working stressful innings, but ultimately is still holding a lead and you want to try to get him through six or seven based on who else is available. But yeah, for the time being with the White Sox postseason odds, the way they are, the way there really isn't a payoff for home field advantage or seating, you know, or anything like that to where getting in is the priority. And should they get in and should they lock in a spot, you know, when the last two weeks are all around and you're talking about, you know, all the, the tough series they have with the Indians and twins and Cubs, yeah, I think I would like to see just, you know, more 
yeah, I wouldn't say punting games just because I think uh, that has a bad connotation and the White Sox, given their um, just general history, shouldn't be taking anything for granted. But just I think uh, the time for being, you know, stretching guys out and trying to ride guys to more wins when they are pretty much unnecessary. Yeah, I think that can be, if it can be avoided, I think it would be smart for Renteria to stop doing that. Again, we'll talk a little bit more about as far as the White Sox pitching situation later in the show when Jim and I preview as far as the next series for the White Sox as they travel to Pittsburgh to face the Pirates for two games. But coming up next, let's talk about the White Sox farm system as MOB Pipeline updated their top 100 prospect list and the White Sox top 30 prospect list with our good friend Jim Callis next on the Sox Machine Podcast. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now, Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Your business may be small, but you've got big goals. Brother Laser Printers can help you succeed, no matter the space, task, or budget. From crisp black and white to vivid full color, our printers offer affordable quality you can trust. Plus, fast printing and high page yields make them ideal for home offices and shared workspaces. It's no wonder Brother is the number one retail brand in laser printer unit sales in the U.S. With Brother at your side, go from small to do it all. Shop now at brother-usa.com laser. In the last three seasons, we have spent a lot of time on this show talking about the Chicago White Sox farm system. It was the key focus for the rebuild to build a new foundation that hopefully would open a competitive window. Well, that foundation has now been set in Chicago, and it's looking pretty good as the White Sox have a really good shot of winning the American League Central in 2020. But as we learned from this trade deadline, the White Sox don't have a lot of tradable assets to help improve the Major League Ball Club. Without a minor league season, player development has pretty much stopped for a large group of players outside of Schaumburg. So where do the White Sox stand in the prospect rankings and with their player development? And who are the new faces that will appear in their top 30 prospects? Well, joining us is one of our best friends of the show from MLB.com. It's Jim Callis. And hello, Jim. Thanks for coming back on the show. I know. Glad to be here, Josh. It's it, it, it's like seems weird. Like we don't we we've had some graduation since we last talked. Uh, Luis Roberts no longer a prospect. Zach Collins is no longer a prospect. Uh, I'm somebody else graduated the other day too. It's like it, it seems some of these guys we've talked about for years no longer count as prospects anymore. Yeah, and you know over our conversations for the years, I listened back as far as our previous conversations in 2017 and 18, 19. For three straight seasons, Jim, you have been telling our listeners that rebuilds generate a winning team a year before everyone thinks they will. And prior to 2020, I think there were a lot of us thinking that in 2021 was going to be the White Sox season. But it looks like you were right, Jim, as 2020 has a chance to be pretty special on the South Side. Are you surprised with how well the White Sox are playing currently? No, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll deflect a little of that credit because I think I said that three years in a row as if it could happen in 18 or 19 or 20, um, or at least 19 or 20. Uh, 
you know, I think when I started saying that, I would have hoped they would have contended by 20. But, like, you know, my point was, you know, the, the Padres, I said it about two. And, you know, we've seen it with teams like the Cubs and the Astros and the Brewers, where you have, you know, teams that have, you know, one of the very best farm systems in baseball, that almost always, not always, but almost always translates in, in, into success. I think I cited, I remember years ago at Baseball America, we looked at who are our number one farm systems. <clears throat> and I think there was a Pirates system in the mid-90s didn't really come to fruition, but all the other teams wound up making the playoffs and having success. And I, I think when you look at where they were, I mean, we knew Luis Robert was going to be ready this year. We knew Nick Madrigal was going to be ready this year. Honestly, we thought Michael Kopech was going to be ready this year, uh, you know, before he elected not to play. You know, and they went out and then they signed, you know, Dallas Keuchel and, and, and Yasmani Grandal, and they brought Abreu back, and they traded for – you know, Mazzara, who, who really hasn't done much yet. But, you know, they went out and, and they signed veterans to supplement. Um, I, you know, I'm not saying I thought they'd have a, a 600 winning percentage or, you know, like they do now. But I thought they did have a chance to be pretty good this year. You mentioned Luis Robert. He's in a very fun race for Rookie of the Year right now with Seattle's Kyle Lewis. They're really neck and neck. It seems like when one has a big night, the other also has a big night. But when we look at... Robert's overall numbers with his bat defense at war. Robert is one of the most valuable players right now in the American League, and he might get some MVP votes in his first season. Do you think this is the best version of what we are going to watch of Luis Robert with you watching him throughout the years within the White Sox farm system? Or is there another level that he could reach with this game? Yeah, I, I, I mean, on one hand, I mean, there are times where you see guys come up and they're stars right away. And not that they regress, but, like, that's kind of who they are. But, I mean, he's only 22 years old, so I think he can get better. Um, you know, the plate discipline, uh, you know, is still – that piece is still not really there yet. I, I'm not saying we're ever going to see him, you know, walk as much as he strikes out. You know, he's not going to be, you know, Nick Madrigal making contact at the plate like that. Um, but, you know, I think he could get better. Um, you know, he's – you know, it's so funny, you know, the way his career, we've talked about him so many times, Josh, and, you know, they they signed him and they, they sent him to the DSL, I mean, really for tax purposes. You couldn't really read much into that. Mm-hmm. And then he was hurt and didn't even homer the next year. You're kind of wondering, okay, like, what exactly is this guy? But I remember talking, I mean, not that I was the only one who saw it either, but, like, you know, he went to the Fall League. And you could see in the fall league, you know, it was funny because he went. I remember actually we do these overviews for each organization for the fall league every year, and we feature one guy who Jonathan Mayo usually goes down and does a bunch of interviews, and that was Robert. And then we, we summarize the rest of the guys. And I was actually writing his writing the White Sox overview about Luis Robert as I was flying to Arizona, and. Uh, you know, was, you know, basically, you know, this guy's tooled up, they gave him a bunch of money, he's been hurt, you know, hoped to see what he could do. And he literally, I don't know if you remember this, pulled his hamstring the first week of, like, while I was on the plane, I think, he pulled a hamstring. Yep. So I had to put in there, like, well, you know, I had to write around it, you know, because you can't go back and read the interview, like, well, you know, could be out for a while, blah, blah, blah. And the second half of the fall league that year, he was healthy, and he was electric, and it was like, oh my gosh! Like this is the guy people have been talking about. This isn't the guy who hit zero home runs in 50 games because he was hurt. I mean, you could, like I've used the line many, many times. Uh, yeah, you know, I adapted it whether it was fall league, minors, or or, or or majors. That there aren't too many guys with his combination of bat speed and foot speed. Um, so I, I think he can get better. Um, you know, I mean, he's having a good year, but 
you know, again, he's striking out four times as much as he's walking. You know, if he tightens that up a little bit, um, you know, then I think he could even find another level. MLB Pipeline updated their top 100. You mentioned Luis Robert graduating, so he's not on the list anymore. The White Sox top 100 prospects are now at number 15, Andrew Vaughn, number 20, Michael Kopech, number 41, Nick Madrigal, and number 99, Garrett Crochet, the White Sox 2020 first-round pick. Madrigal might graduate soon. That'll be another top 100 prospect off the board for the White Sox. Yeah, I don't know if he's gonna. I don't know if he's gonna make it, Josh, because with the injury, they've got 21 games left, right? Yes. He needs 91 at bats. I, I don't. It's Ooh. gonna be weird, you know. I, and I didn't mean to cut you off, but I, you know, I've been saying this, I and mean, we've talked about this a number of times. How like the system's gonna look a lot different after this year. I think with the injury and with Kopech electing not to play, both those guys are still gonna be on the list going into next year, which is not what we suspected, you know, when we talked before the pandemic came. True. Because Madrigal, I don't think Madrigal's going to get 91 at-bats in 21 games. That's going to be tough. It will be tough, unless they stop batting him ninth and start batting him leadoff. <laughs> well, he's not going to walk, <laughs> so, I mean, you know you're getting five at-bats a game if, if you turn the lineup over and he, and he hits in the leadoff spot. Right, that is true. I, I don't think he'll bat leadoff, and I'm not advocating for Nick Magical to bat leadoff. Uh, listeners, but that would be the only way he gets to 91. So so it looks like in 2021, Vaughn, Kopech, and Magical will still be on the White Sox prospect list, but we are expected at some point in that 2021 season that all three may graduate. And then, as you alluded to, the White Sox farm system looks a lot different than what we've been talking about in the last couple of years. When you look at the White Sox farm system today, Jim, what are your thoughts top to bottom as far as the overall health of the system? Yeah, I mean, I keep, I guess I keep repeating myself when I write about it. I, I, I reference, I think it's the most top-heavy farm system in baseball right now. I mean, you know, Robert's gone. He graduated, I think, two days ago. But they have three of the top 40 or so prospects in baseball. And then they have, you know, Crochet. And there's a little depth behind those guys. But, you know, it drops off pretty quickly. I mean, not that there aren't going to be big leaguers, but, you know, it's a lot of relievers and role players. And, you know, like right now, you know, Dane Dunning's another guy who's going to graduate. He's healthy again. You know, he's not going to graduate this year, but he'll probably graduate early next year too. So, I mean, we're th- you know, I don't think we're going to change the rankings too much in the off season because I don't think there's going to be much to change them on unless we have like some kind of – expanded fall league which i don't think we're necessarily going to have so you know let's say by by june you know before the draft next year you know the the top five prospects would probably be crochet jared kelly jonathan stever matthew thompson mike Adolfo. i mean at least if it's based on our list right now and you know we've talked about i i like Adolfo, but i mean this year through no fault of his own is another year where he's not going to get at bats um, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's got 1,368 at bats now in six pro seasons. Like Mike Rodolfo is not a sure thing. And, you know, behind him is Gavin Sheets, who's okay. But like, I don't think Gavin Sheets, I don't think Andrew Vaughn's necessarily quaking, thinking about Gavin Sheets, battling him for the first base job down the road. So it's, it, it's still interesting at the top, but it thins out pretty quick. You know, even going into early next year, Matt Foster and Cody Hoyer are racking up innings for the White Sox in their bullpen. Zach Birdie is also in the White Sox bullpen. And Bernardo Flores is also with the team, and we are expecting him to get some playing time as well. 
So the White Sox are going to keep you on your toes, uh, updating this top 30 in the next six months here, Jim. Uh, so there will be new faces that will be joining that we haven't paid a lot of attention to, or they're just joining as far as the White Sox farm system. But when you look at the White Sox farm system or you talk to others about the White Sox farm system, are there any prospects that catch your eye in an intriguing way because they may have a plus skill or there are other attributes that you think that could make them a major leaguer that we're not talking about? I mean, yes, but I don't know if there's impact guys. Like, you know, Andrew Dahlquist, you know, is a guy who I could probably rank higher. You know, if I went for upside, Andrew Dahlquist would be higher. I mean, we're talking about a young pitcher they took out of high school last year, paid over slot. He's pitched three innings this year, you know, in, in two years of pro ball now. So it's real hard to know exactly what you have with him. I, I, I should probably, well, I mean, I guess I've tempered my enthusiasm, and he's gotten older. I really did like Jake Berger out of the draft. Like, there's there still maybe something with Jake Berger. We just, you know, he, I mean, he look, he got back on the field this year. That's a positive. Um, you know, we need to see him, you know, in a full minor league season. He kind of interests me. You know, Jimmy Lambert we saw a little bit in the big leagues, you know, might be a, a back-of-the-rotation guy. You know, I, I think it's the guys who are the super young guys. Like, you know, like, like uh, you know, ben, Benjamin Bailey, you know, who's an outfielder who hasn't played above the Dominican Summer League. He's got a chance to have some pretty interesting tools. You know, Brian Ramos, who, who's another guy who, who hasn't played above rookie ball yet. He's got a chance to, you know, hit for some average and power. Um, you know, Jose Rodriguez, who we we just added to the list, another rookie ball guy. Um, when when Robert graduated, I mean, he's just getting started too. He hasn't played above rookie ball, but he could be, you know, averageish tools uh, across the board. So I think there's some super young guys. You know, it's just you know with a, a five round draft this year, and they went all in on their first two picks. It's not like you added, you know, six draft picks who are going to make the top thirty. They added two, and you know, I, I suppose you know Bailey Horn could be in the discussion as, as guys continue to graduate and, and they took two money savers. But um, yeah, it's, I, I do think if you're looking at it, honestly, I mean, I, I think there's real reason obviously to be excited about what the White Sox are doing this year. And I don't think it's a fluke. I, I think they're going to be in position to contend for a number of years, but I do think, you know, by say mid season next year, you know, when the when their big three guys are all probably graduate to the big leagues, you know, outside of, you know, like recent draft picks, the foundation of that team is going to be kind of what you see, what you get. I don't think there's a lot more pieces coming. Are we going to be talking about one of the worst farm systems in Major League Baseball once Vaughn, Kopech, and Magical graduate? Um, I haven't actually looked at it that way, but honestly, yes, I think you could say that. And And look, I mean, I like – Crochet and Kelly, and I've always been a Stever, you know, backer. You, you got the young high school pitchers, Thompson and Dahlquist. You know, Jake Berger may bounce back. I mean, those are all interesting guys. But you know, if anybody's listening to this, White Sox fans may go, well, "What's he talking about?" Like, those are all good prospects, and they are. But like, every team has prospects like that. You know, like like good prospects like that. I mean, everybody everybody has at least a half dozen good prospects. It's just the, the depth behind those guys. I think it, it's more fourth outfielders backups, relief pitchers, not, hey, here's a guy we think could, could be in the middle of our rotation or in our starting lineup. I, I don't think they have many guys like that outside their their top half dozen guys 
once their big three guys graduate. Uh, our next question comes from John, and uh, John's asking, do you think prospect evaluators are not valuing command or control highly enough and are focusing too much on big stuff guys like the White Sox, Ronaldo Lopez, who was just optioned down to Schaumburg, and Dylan Cease, who's having mixed results in 2020? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's always the, – the, 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 the stuff versus – Polish spectrum. It's always tough if if you have guys who are one or the other. I mean, ideally, you know, you get a guy with both, or you look at a guy like I mean, he wasn't a White Sox prospect. You know, Dallas Keuchel, um, you know, was never a stuff guy and never that highly regarded as a prospect. And you look at the career he's had. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I do think like we all know. Like I, I know as a writer and scouts know as scouts. Like when I've had this conversation, like we all got like, oh, you know, so and so is throwing ninety seven, but we all know like you could throw ninety seven. There might be another guy who throws ninety one, but he's got high spin rates and tough angle, and he commands it and plays better than the guy who's throwing ninety seven and straight and can't put it where he wants. So it's tough. I mean, I still think the velo opens eyes, like and turns your head. And I mean, you see in the draft, it's the big velo guys get drafted, you know, higher than the polished guys. If, if, if you're just one extreme or the other, um, but it's tough. Like, you know, it, it's like, yeah, I, I do think there's some of that. Now on the flip side, you could also say if we were having this conversation, even as late as 2018, man, Lucas Giolito, like that guy's terrible. He's leading the American league and walks. He gets crushed. Has like six one three ERA, like he's his stuff. You know, is down a little bit. His stuff wasn't as good as it was in the minors at times. But like, look, there's 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 no control there. It's time to to pull the plug on Lucas Giolito, and then you look at how good he's been the last two years. So, you know, I I think you know your your Ronaldo Lopez's and your Dylan Ceases are, are going to get a lot of opportunity to to show what they can do. You know, I, I think the biggest difference is that the command guys, you know, and again, I'm talking about extremes where you're say just one or the other and not some mix of both. Your command guys are, you know, if they produce results in the minors are going to get a shot, they may just not get as many opportunities and have them come as easily as the guys with big time stuff. But you can't, you know, I think in the bat, even when you see a guy like Ronaldo Lopez, who, who's really struggled, I mean, he's got a good arm. I mean, no, and look, when they acquired him, and we talked about this, there was people who thought that guy needs to be a reliever, and maybe maybe that's what he'll wind up being. And you know, Dylan Cease has got like kind of a his ERA is much better than his strikeout to walk ratio right now. He's not even striking out that many guys, and he's given up home runs, and he's walked about a guy every other inning. I mean, those guys have big time arms, and, and sometimes you know, Dylan Cease is only twenty four. You know, you know. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer to click, and and you give those guys shots. But no, we we find this. I find the same thing, even from a ranking prospects, uh, you know, standpoint. Like I'll give you an example. You mentioned him earlier. He just got called up, Bernardo Flores. Um, and you're like, well, you know, how do you grade him out? Like I've got, I gave him a 55 changeup. You know, which is slightly above average, and you can maybe go plus if you really like him. But it's, I mean, everything else is is a 50 at best. And that might be, if you're just grading pure stuff, a little bit kind. I mean, he pitches kind of around 91 miles an hour, which is kind of 40-ish velocity. Now, he, he got a good riding life, and he commands it, so I put a 50 on it. The breaking stuff, eh, you know, it's okay. Um, but it's tough. So, like, but if you look at his results, like, you know, he's pitched, you know, better than most guys in their system. He's had three pretty solid years in a row in their system. So it's like, where do you rank Bernardo Flores versus, you know, 
guy who throws a lot harder, but you know doesn't throw strikes, or how do you really you know, you know it, those guys are tough, and you know I kind of always feel like they have to prove themselves every step of the way, and, and Bernardo's done that, and, he, and he's gotten a shot, but it's it's it, I think the scouts and and guys like me are probably always gonna you know gravitate toward the guys who who have big time stuff, but like you like I said, Dallas Keuchel is a perfect example. He was never you know a big big time guy. And, you know, good, very good college pitcher. You know, I, I saw him win a couple games in Omaha with Arkansas, but he was—I want to say what—a seventh-round pick. And I don't—I'm looking here real quick. When when I was at Baseball America, <laughs> we ranked him, and this was when the Astros farm system was awful. Josh, what do you think? So we we ranked him in the, in the in the Astros top thirty for three straight years before he graduated to the big leagues. He was a seventh-round pick. What do you think is the highest we ranked him in a bad farm system? Eighteen. 21. Wow. <laughs> we ranked him 24, 23, and 21 in three years in the uh, in the Astros farm system. And, again, I mean, were we wrong? Yes, we were wrong. Um, <laughs> we were definitely wrong. But, like, you know, that's what I'm saying. It's, you know, and, again, we, we're not just doing these by looking at numbers. I mean, we're talking to people inside, outside the organization. You know, one thing we did, you know, the Baseball America does, and we don't do it only pipeline, is they you're not doing it this year. We do all the minor league top 20s when we were at Baseball America. So you're getting all kinds of information during the season, you know, directly from the minor leagues. It's cra- it's crazy. Like we had, but here are, I'm, I'm digressing, here are the pitchers we had ranked ahead of Dallas Keuchel in, the, in just the Astros organization. <laughs> Jared Cozart, <laughs> Paul Clemens, oh, Brett God. Oberholzer, Mike Fultonevich, Adrian Hauser, Nick Tropiano, Jake Buchanan, R.J. Alanis, Ross Seaton, Juan Abreu, and then we had Dallas Keuchel. You know, it's just it's it's it is a tough call. And and again, Dallas Keuchel much better than we thought he was. And even the Astros will tell you. I mean, you know, he was a pre-Jeff Lunau guy, and you know, his his first full year in the big league, he got crushed. Um, and Brett Strom, who I think is one of the best pitching coaches in baseball, helped kind of get him straightened out. But you know, nobody saw that one coming. Jim often has mailbag columns where he answers your guys' questions on MLBPipeline.com. We had more fan questions that we don't have time for because Jim and I could talk for hours about this stuff. But I highly recommend submitting them to Jim, and he will answer your questions in his column that you can read on MLB.com slash pipeline. And follow Jim on Twitter at JimCallisMLB to submit those questions. And, of course, read his always excellent work on MLB.com slash pipeline. And Jim, as always, thanks for coming on the show. And here I was expecting doom and gloom about the White Sox future farm system, and I don't feel so bad. So thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, it's still going to be top-heavy. But, you know, with Crochet and Kelly and Thompson, now, you know, the, the scary thing is, you know, pitching's volatile. But they're, they're going to have some pitchers. But I think from a position standpoint, you know, Steve or two, from a position standpoint, you know, after – so who are we talking – who's going to be their next – who's going to be their best, best prospect? I, I guess Mike Rodolfo could be their best position prospect. See, I was trying to feel better, Jim, and now you're not making me feel better. <laughs> well, so. I mean, well, but, no, but here's the thing. <laughs> like, if you have – if you're looking at a team that's got, you know, Andrew Vaughn and Nick Madrigal and Tim Anderson and Yohan Mankata and Eli Jimenez and Luis Robert – Along with veterans like Encarnacion and Grandal and uh, Jose Abreu, 
Right. You can only play nine guys in your lineup. So I, I don't, you know, I, mean, I think their lineups can be in pretty good shape. So they're, they're just not going to have, like you said at this beginning, they're not going to have, you know, a, you know, like top, top 100 type of bats that then you trade for something. But like I, I would be happy to take the White Sox lineup for the next five years or so. I, I do too. So we'll see what happens with the White Sox. And uh, next time we chat, we'll be t- talking about the 2021 Major League Baseball draft, Jim. And that might be the next best position player for the Chicago White Sox. But as always, Jim, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, no, no problem, Josh. Always great talking to you. Lowe's Spring Fest is here. We've got $10 off gallon cans or $40 off five-gallon pails on select interior and exterior paint, stains, and coatings. And appliance special values plus free local delivery on appliances $3.96 or more in-store and online. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. Offers valid through 414. Actual paint sizes are 116 to 640 fluid ounces. Exclusions apply. See Lowe's.com slash rebates for rebate terms and conditions. For appliances, restrictions and additional fees may apply. See Lowe's.com or store for details. U.S. only. From earaches to strep tests, there's Clinic at CVS. See a provider, fill a prescription, and grab essentials. Or see us online with telehealth options. That's healthier made easier. Visit Clinic at CVS today. Services vary by location. See MinuteClinic.com for details. Big thanks to Jim Callis for joining the show again to discuss the White Sox farm system and their new top 100 rankings. We have Jim Margulis now rejoining me on the show as we preview the upcoming White Sox series as they head to Pittsburgh. Lesser, Jim. I come on now. It's not. I would not say lesser. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, Jim's back. Uh, So let's talk about the White Sox and Pittsburgh Pirates series. The Pirates are currently thirteen and twenty-six as they are on the road for Kumar Rocker and the number one draft pick in the two thousand twenty season. The Boston Red Sox though are challenging them on that front, and as well as the Texas Rangers. Uh, But the Pirates did win their last game against the Cincinnati Reds. They're still last place in the National League Central. Your pitching probables for this series on Tuesday and Wednesday. These are 6.05 p.m. Central Time games. Dylan Cease is going to take the mound for the White Sox on Tuesday. He's going to go up against Joe Musgrove. And on Wednesday, it is to be announced for the White Sox against JT Brubaker for the Pirates, and Brubaker has been throwing pretty well for the Pirates. Uh, he is one of their prospects. He's right now trying to audition for a spot in the 2021 rotation for Pittsburgh. He's currently 1-0 in the season with a 3.96 ERA, and uh, he's got 27 strikeouts. So the White Sox are not facing the same Pirates pitchers as last time, so we'll see if the White Sox offense can still have continued success. Uh, against the Pirates as they did the last time they were in Chicago. Musgrove has got an ugly ERA uh, at 6.62. So the White Sox offense should be in good shape for Tuesday. But let's talk about that to be announced for the White Sox starter on Wednesday. And Jim, do you have any idea who could possibly start for the White Sox? Not right now. I think it's, uh, you know, Dane Dunning is possible because he would be on regular rest and maybe it makes sense to have him go especially if there's an off day trailing and maybe they can, you know, pad his schedule out as they head into 17 games in 17 days. But I'm guessing, you know, Gio Gonzalez is possible. I think, you know, depending on how the first game goes and whether there is a need for, um, you know, trying to get a win out of that series that maybe, you know, if they don't feel like they need to get a win, you know, maybe they can mix and match some uh, pitchers and, and have Bernardo Flores maybe, uh, work in a tandem situation with 
you know, Alex McRae or some random righty. So they have a couple different ways they can go. And I think depending on uh, just the shape of the, uh, you know, Pirates series, I don't, I don't think they want to be in a position where they drop both games against the Pirates. But if they take one, I can see a situation where they might get a little cavalier. And, and again, not like necessarily punt a game, but maybe give Rentry a chance to see what it's like if he can mix and match some guys, especially like say if the bullpen is relatively rested. And uh, also to uh, update you on, as I'm clicking through baseball reference, I did find one team uh, that finished with the top three spots among position players for wins above replacement, and it is the Pirates. It is 1902. Nice. They had uh, Hannes Wagner, 7.3, Tommy Leach, 6.0, and then Ginger Beaumont at 5.1. Yes. So those were the... uh, the second year of a full major leagues is the first uh, and right now only other instance I can find with the uh, top three guys and, and at least top three position players and wins above replacement all coming from the same team. I did find a couple two out of threes with the Giants in the early 1930s. Also, the the Big Red Machine had a couple two out of threes, but uh, so far I'm up to 1938 in the National League. So far, the 1902 Pirates are the only ones who have finished with all three spots. Nice. So it's been a while. Yes. 118 years. That's all. That's all. Hopefully the White Sox can have the top three. Uh, I want to throw out a name to you that could be a possible starter on Wednesday. This is time for Josh's crazy, crazy idea. Ready, Jim? Mm Mm-hmm. Lucas Giolito. The reason I bring up Giolito, this would be on four days rest. Because I know he pitched on Saturday. If you count down the days into the game one of the postseason, which is going to be on September 29th. You would love to have Lucas Giolito start game one for the White Sox. But as he's currently pacing right now, if he doesn't start on Wednesday, uh, he could start that Friday game against Detroit at home. And if you count five days from that Friday, so his next start, would be the 16th against the Twins, the 21st against Cleveland, and then the 26th, the second-to-last game of the season against the Cubs, meaning that Giolito wouldn't be ready until October 1st to start again. And that is Game 3 of the first round. You may not even get to Game 3, depending on how Games 1 and 2 go. So instead of that... Could they have Giolito start on Wednesday, give him, you know, just tell him take on five innings and then get him on a path in which, because if he starts on Wednesday, then if you count five days from that day, Giolito would be scheduled to start on September 29th. I don't hate that idea. It, it's not bad. I think it comes down to whether that does anything to compromise him the rest of the way. Uh, kind of like we're thinking about with, you know, um, Dallas Keuchel throwing 114 pitches and then having a uh, back problem pop up. Would that be something where people, you know, say if G Lito has a rough start, two starts down the line or, or comes stumbling into October, do people look at that start and say, well, you shouldn't have started on short rest. I blame Ricky for knocking him out of his routine. I, I wouldn't be terribly concerned about that. So I think if Renteria did try that, I would see enough value um, and then wouldn't pin on that unless for some reason he leaves his start with a trainer assistance uh, on short rest. But I think should, 
Yeah, I, I think the one thing I would say is that maybe you're overthinking it when it comes to mapping out a postseason start from early September to the very end of it. I think if uh, they do try to line them up for the first start of the series, I think uh, they would try to steal a day here, borrow a starter to try to push them for an extra day of rest, skip them the very last turn if uh, their seating is clear. I think there are different ways to do it to where they can line them up without uh, you know, having to put them in short rest if necessary. So I can see the value in starting him on short rest against the Pirates and then giving him a day um, you know, with the off se- uh, with the off day coming up later this week to where you can put him into a good rhythm and a good slot for the 17 games in 17 days. So I, I see the value up front, but... If the White Sox don't see uh, a reason to uh, put them on short rest now, I think they can rearrange their rotation later down the line in order to make sure that he's starting as many postseason games as possible. Yeah, I mean, they have their seeding clinched. Let's say, good news, the White Sox have clinched the American League Central. They could skip that last start for him against the Cubs. And if you skip that last start, then he's got extra days of rest going to game one of the postseason, That was my other idea, but that's just something as far as looking at the calendar, as we start marching towards the postseason and thinking about arranging the pitching rotation just caught my eye, Jim, in the sense of, Oh, Giolito is not on track to start September 29th. Maybe it would be a good idea if he was, how can we do that? Mm. And that's where I got the idea of, well, maybe have him start on Wednesday and not, ha- not expect him to do a full workload. It is against their lesser opponent in the Pittsburgh Pirates. And the last time he did face the Pirates, he threw a no-hitter. <laughs> so that's yeah. why I'm calling it my crazy idea. I, it's, it's just crazy because we as White Sox fans haven't talked about a postseason team and arranging a postseason pitching rotation since 2008. Uh, that's even before when podcasts got big. Um but that's where we are right now, and that's going to be something we'll have to think about. Uh, and he'll still pick up starts against Minnesota. He'll still pick up another start against Cleveland. So he'll be there when the White Sox need him to try to win the American League Central. But that was just an idea that I had while looking at the calendar, Jim, is that, well, maybe Giolito could start on Wednesday. Yeah, the Pirates part doesn't bother me. Uh, we've seen the value with the White Sox going 9-1 and against Kansas City that uh, wins are wins. And if it's... If the schedule is imbalanced in, in such a way that they just face a lot of bad teams or at least uh, acutely bad teams and uh, that, uh, you know, that possibility is there to roll up the score, so be it. Uh, the White Sox are not too proud. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's kind of like a, uh, you know, a little bit like a street fight in which, you know, the White Sox have not had a history of winning these things. So if they have to uh, bite or pull some hair or go for a coin blow, so be it. Uh, they're, they're not, uh, they are not above that. And they shouldn't be. No one should be. Yeah. I know that people it's professional are, sports and you know, people are throwing out as far as, well, the white Sox are seven 11 against teams above 500. You know, who also sucks against teams above 500, the New York Yankees, they're six and 12. I don't know why nobody calls that out, but let, let's go ahead and call it yeah. out for the white Sox. I guess with the Yankees, it's it, they're criticized for not facing up well against the Rays. So I think it manifests itself there. Well, but yeah. only yeah, that, only that head to head matchup. Yeah, yeah, they're getting their ass kicked by the Rays. Uh, that has not been a that has not been pretty for Yankees fans, and they are not taking it well right now. The third place New York Yankees. 
Um, but anyways, so that's the situation for the White Sox heading into this series, going to Pittsburgh. We'll focus as far as what happens on Wednesday. We'll have the White Sox wake-up calls. So make sure to follow us on Twitter at Sox Machine. Read our work at SoxMachine.com for the latest updates on who would be starting that game for the White Sox on Wednesday. And, of course, listen to the White Sox wake-up calls. And we'll, we'll recap as far as that Pittsburgh Pirates series on Sox Machine Live for this upcoming day off, Thursday, September 10th, before the White Sox start a three-game series against the Detroit Tigers at home. But you guys had a lot of questions for us, as always, this week. Uh, so let's go ahead and start answering them next in P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter by following us on Twitter at Sox Machine or helping us help support us at patreon.com slash socks machine by becoming a friend of the podcast and answering your questions is Jim Margulis and Jim. Our first question that we've got comes from David and David is asking if the playoffs started tomorrow, what does the roster look like and would there be any surprises? Well, I'm not entirely sure what the roster would look like, only because I'm not quite sure about the roster rules. I think uh, right now, you know, Major League Baseball says that uh, the players need to be on the roster by September 15th. And I'm not entirely sure if that means 40-man roster or 60-man player pool. I don't think it means 28-man roster, and I, I think... It'll be 28-man rosters for the postseason. So, yeah, that's one thing I'm not quite sure about or quite clear about. So there could be some further clarifications or further further adaptations of the rules, especially if, like, say, uh, a team experiences an outbreak or, or something like that closer to the postseason. So with that in mind, I think right now the roster is mostly the same. I think the addition of Jared Dyson kind of takes care of the position part of the roster. I think if maybe, um, you know, they didn't acquire somebody like him, they might acquire you know, some kind of or or might add some kind of defensive specialist or speedster, or maybe they just leave that up to Adam Engel. But with Dyson there, I think that more or less fleshes out that part of the lineup uh, or that part of the you know, late inning strategy when it comes to position players. So that's fine. Pitcher-wise, I can see some flexibility. I think uh, Carlos Rodon right now is the one guy who's kind of off the roster, and but theoretically could still be in the mix or be deployable in a number of roles. And I think if you're looking off the uh, 40-man roster or off the current 28-man roster, I could see maybe, you know, Garrett Crochet's name does come up. I, I can see the utility just because the White Sox don't have a true lefty relief threat. I mean, Ross Stettweiler is number one and Bernardo Flores is number two. And you know, I wrote about uh, on, on Sunday that the White Sox are in a decent position for being without proven lefty relievers just because the way the right-handed relievers' arsenals are, that they're mainly cutters and change-ups and not really reliant on the power-fastball-slider combo that so many relievers are. And uh, aside from Jimmy Cordero, everybody is handling left-handed bats pretty well. Even Steve Ciszek is pretty dangerous against lefties. They do walk a few more than usual, so maybe there's a bit more nibbling involved or they don't, uh, um, you know, they're not as aggressive and not as on the attack. But so far, they've been pretty 
effective against lefties. So maybe somebody like Crochet isn't available, but if they want somebody who can be devastating, I could see the White Sox be tempted to add him. I would just be reluctant to just because... Um, you know, he hasn't pitched in the majors. He, he only pitched uh, three innings in uh, college ball this year. And so I think for him to go from throwing three innings and not being in a truly competitive environment in Schaumburg to pitching key innings or key uh, matchups against left-handed bats in the postseason strikes me as a little bit uh, risky and unfair to development. And uh, just I, I wouldn't want to saddle him with those expectations, just not knowing anything about what he's supposed to look like. So I think they'll avoid him. Tyler Johnson is another guy who maybe, you know, if you're looking for a, a more of a, a strikeout-oriented right-hander, that maybe he comes up. But kind of along the same lines, last we saw him in, like, extended amount of time, he was uh, in the Arizona Fall League trying to work, you know, retool his delivery and be uh, more leg-driven to avoid the... Uh, lat issue that he had that sidelined him for a lot of 2019 so he might not be somebody who's fully functional so I can see the pitching staff be mostly intact too so I don't see too many surprises maybe you know I'm thinking about looking at the roster one guy is maybe Zach Collins uh, maybe if they just need like a left-handed power bat like if they have Grandal in the lineup and they're looking for somebody who matches up well against the righty can hit a homer if a homer is needed maybe that's somebody they keep on the bench as well but Again, I wouldn't consider him a really big surprise given that he was spent a lot of time in the roster already. So I think more or less the White Sox have the names they want. It's just more a matter of getting like a guy like Aaron Bummer healthy and effective again. You know what, David, to me, the big surprise is that we're talking about a White Sox postseason roster situation. <laughs> uh, so refreshing. But David, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from John O. And John is asking... If the season ended today, which of the division standings would have most and least surprised you? Example, the National League West being led by the Dodgers and then Padres doesn't surprise me at all. But if the Diamondbacks finish in last place while the Rockies or Giants score a wildcard spot, I don't think many people saw that coming. And that comes from John. Yeah, I think the... uh... When it comes to the division leaders, the only one that surprises me is probably the White Sox, you know, being a, a half game above uh, Cleveland and Minnesota, uh, given the three-team race, given all the injuries they've had. Uh, I, I think that's what surprises me. I think if the White Sox were fully healthy, uh, given just the weird things about the season, then, yeah, they, you could see them being somebody uh, who just benefits from the circumstance. But they're not benefiting especially well. They're just playing well as a team, and they're they're playing well against teams they're, they're beating the teams they should beat doing that very well. So yeah, that uh, bully for them. And that's the one surprise I see, but you know, Tampa, uh, Oakland, you know, Oakland being a few games up on Houston in a small sample doesn't surprise me. Atlanta, the Cubs, Dodgers, those are all good. I think, you know, just a few cases that jump out to me, the Blue Jays being ahead of the Yankees that I didn't see. I, I saw the Rays and Yankees being a two team race and I didn't see any team getting in between them. So the Blue Jays, especially being homeless for a good chunk of the season, uh-huh. uh, that, that surprises me there. Um, the bottom of the AL West, uh, the Rangers and Angels being so uh, uncompetitive and, and the Angels having to win five games in a row to be eight games below 500, that surprises me. So uh, that's a case where that part of the standings jumps out to me. The Nats being in the uh, NLE cellar, is a bit of a surprise, although, you know, when you consider they won the World Series last year, they just might be uh, more content to, uh, 
you know, when like a guy like Strasburg gets hurt and so forth, they might just be a little bit more content to mail it in. And then uh, maybe the NL Central being so blah. Uh, you know, the Cubs being a legitimately good team, that's fine. Uh, Cardinals, hard to tell given their outage uh, this year, but the Brewers and the Reds, I think, just not being all that inspiring, I think, throws me off a little bit. I think we are in for a surprise in the last 20 games of the season. I don't think the Cubs are winning the National League Central. You, th- you think the Cardinals are going to lap them? I, I think the Cardinals are going to do what they did last year. And I think the Cardinals are going to come from behind and uh, they're going to win the National League Central over the Chicago Cubs. And I'm really looking forward to hear what the excuse is this time for the Cubs. That Cubs team started at 13-3 and and they are 10-15 and cents. Hmm. And with St. Louis now winning their last three games against the Cubs... They're only one and a half games back of the Chicago Cubs in the National League Central. The Cubs are, yeah, the the Cubs are 10 and 15 since they started 13 and 3 on the season. I mean, that's crazy because the St. Louis Cardinals missed all of that time. But like the Chicago Cubs run differential is plus nine. Their pitching has suddenly gone away. Their expected win loss record is 21 and 20. So they're overachieving by two games. Whereas the St. Louis Cardinals expected win loss record is 19 and 13. So they're underachieving by two games. So looking at expected win loss record, St. Louis should be leading the National League Central. But I think mm-hmm. that's the surprise in, in, in two weeks. Okay. Going up to that White Sox Cubs final series of the season. I think that is going to be the surprise for, for people listening right now is the Cardinals winning the National League Central over the Cubs. Yeah, I guess it would be a surprise in terms of given what we know, but I think before the season, it wouldn't surprise me if the Cardinals were ahead of the Cubs, if they were 1-2 in the That's division. That's a good point. You know, not knowing that the outbreak was going to happen. Um, I, I think the Cubs, assuming they get in the postseason, and they should, I think they can be a better postseason team than a regular season team just because if they ride Darvish and Hendricks. They should be fine. They could yeah. be in okay shape. So, you know, it, you know that, it's especially reliant on those two because John Lester is, uh, is disappeared, but... Um, you know, and, and, you know, he's getting older and he served his contract well, so that's really no, uh, no slight to him. It's just, you know, getting older, but, uh, but yeah, if they have, uh, Darvish and Hendricks, they could be dangerous, but yeah, I think for a one through five rotation and, and one through nine lineup, the Cardinals might be better equipped for the remainder of September. But if the Cubs don't win the National League Central, they'll be like a fifth seed and that fifth seed's going to have to face San Diego. And I don't think you want to face San Diego. Yeah, they're feisty. They are feisty. They're just like the White Sox of the National League. Yeah, precocious. Yeah. Like, yeah, okay, you're starting you Darvish. Well, if that Padres team's hitting, <laughs> they can, they can <laughs> knock out Darvish real quick. And it wouldn't be the first time that Darvish failed to perform in the postseason stage. But taking a look as far as the standings, Cincinnati being terrible surprises me. That, that I just don't understand on how well that starting rotation has been pitching for them. And there's just like no offense and their bullpen is terrible. Like they're going to finish fourth in that division. Yeah. The Reds are amazing in that. Like they, they surprise or, or like the record is maybe what the record should be, but they take the opposite way of getting there. Right. On a, on a positive side, I applaud the way that the players for Miami, Baltimore, and Detroit, and then, you know, to kind of piggyback on what John said, the Rockies and the Giants, 
nobody was expecting these teams to compete for a postseason berth in 2020. Maybe these teams, especially San Francisco uh, and Detroit and Baltimore and Miami in, in a rebuilding stage, probably going to finish last in the divisions, more focused on draft position for 2021. And here we are at the 40 game mark. And these teams are within two games of 500. So I, I applaud them, especially Detroit for giving Minnesota such a tough time this weekend. Thank you, Tigers. Uh, and, and winning that last game against the twins. Uh, just calm down this upcoming weekend when you face the white Sox. but no, I applaud the players for the Orioles, the Marlins and the Tigers uh, and the Rockies and the Giants for continuing to fight because even though nobody believes in these teams to make the postseason, they have still given themselves an opportunity to really surprise as far as everyone in Major League Baseball and especially in the National League, Miami, San Francisco, and Colorado, they got a really good shot. One of those three teams could be the eighth seed. And even though it's the eighth seed and they'll probably get destroyed by the Los Angeles Dodgers, at least they get to say they made the postseason in 2020 when everybody thought they were rebuilding. Yeah, I think we're seeing the benefits and drawbacks of expanded postseason. And the benefits are that it does give a team like the Tigers and Orioles and Marlins and these teams that might have been also rans or mid-tanking or, or uh, in, in the thick of their rebuild, incentive to try, incentive to add a player, uh, especially if they, they deem he's going to be a good value or they can get him uh, you know, for either less than they thought or that he's going to produce more than his contract uh gets him so there's that and that's fun i think that's fun for those markets but i think it is it does sap some of the meaning of the postseason like if this were a 162 game season with a five-team postseason race this al central race would be nuts (laughs) if this were september and you had the uh the uh, white Sox, indians and twins a half or one and a half game separating the three of them that would be insane and knowing that uh when the smoke clears and and being one game worse than the uh, Twins or Indians or the both of them could mean they don't make October. <laughs> it could just be uh, the stakes are so high that that's what makes a, a, a pennant race great. Uh, and so when you have a situation where all three of those teams can get in, it does take some of the meaning out of it. And so that's where I think that's it. it you know, the power of a good pennant race is something I think that separates baseball from other sports, and that's something you lose by having expanded postseason. So it does bring up the floor of the league and, and incentivize teams to not just mail it in. But at the same time, I think if you take too much meaning away from baseball's postseason or regular season in service of an expanded postseason, I think you're going to lose one of the things that separates baseball from the other sports without getting too much of a gain. Because I think if you have an expanded postseason, you could run into a problem like the Braves had in their postseason streak where they don't sell out uh, the opening rounds of the postseason just because they're used to getting there and doesn't get important until you get to the uh, the championship series or the DL, uh, whatever it is, the DS or whatever, uh, however that uh, breaks down. But I can see like the first round of the season, not, a postseason not meaning anything anymore. So I think that's the danger. But right now, at least for the time being and it being novel, I think we're seeing the benefits of an expanded postseason. <laughs> kind of made me think like, what if you just had like a randomly expected postseason every 10 years just to get teams out of the t- tanking cycles, especially if the league thinks like, okay, uh, um, we have too many teams tanking. Let's correct that. I think 
the league should not have eight playoff teams moving forward. But I am in favor of having one additional postseason team to be expanded to six teams in each league moving forward. There is something that makes sense about the top two teams getting in. But I still like the idea of just like this, you know, (laughs) I say I like this idea until the White Sox uh, finish a game behind uh, the Twins and Indians and miss it, uh, winning 95 games or whatever. But (laughs) I just, uh, I do like the idea of a good pennant race. And I think that just, uh, you know, to to sound like an old guy, uh, that's how I was raised. You know, just trying to think what year it was in the 90s where the Giants won like 102 games and missed the postseason. Was that 93? 92? I think that was something that's, yeah. Yeah, they, they yeah, I'm looking it up right now. I think yeah, it was 1993 yep, where they yep, won 103 one game. finished second. Yeah, that's The insane. Braves won 104. And the Phillies won the East with yeah. 97. Yep. Lots of people in San yep. Francisco were angry that year. <laughs> but as, uh, you know, as much as that sucks, it's also very memorable. So that's that's kind of what jumps out to me is like uh, what makes an impression and I value the things that make an impression. I still think that there is a balance though because I do think this is going to satisfy a lot of baseball fans, Jim, though, on, on this expanded postseason. I, I could see this being a success in Major League Baseball's eyes, especially in the first round of the one eight teams playing in the opening weekend, the three-game series. That's why I think the compromise is goes six teams, third seed versus six seed, four seed versus five seed in the opening three game round, and then go into the divisional series. And then the benefit of being the top two seeds of your league is that you get those three days off to get your rotation and your roster rested and ready to play. So you get to enjoy mm-hmm. that benefit. That's my compromise. Because I'm with you. I don't think you can carry eight playoff teams in Major League Baseball, have more than half the league, make it into the postseason every single year. I think six is a good compromise, especially if what Steve Stone has been tweeting out comes to fruition, is that in order to make up lost revenue, Major League Baseball announces they're going to have two (laughs) expansion franchises added, and we're going to have 32 teams in Major League Baseball. But... That's just that's a conversation later on the road, but something to think about as far as we inch closer to the postseason is does does everyone like this format? Sounds like a lot of people don't. But is the five team format good? I don't think it is. So there's got to be a way that you can compromise. Yeah, I see like a lot of people complaining about one and done, but I like the one and done. I don't. I don't. Uh, I like that incentivizes teams to win their division. You're such a traditionalist, Jim. We should just have everyone, no divisions. You have the American and National League. Whoever's the best team, they just go directly to the World Series. But then how would I have my most AL Central players? (laughs) I can't can't please you at all, Jim. Like, I can't figure this out (laughs) to make you happy. Okay. (laughs) Let's put the Atlanta Braves back in the National League West, and that'll make everyone happy. (laughs) Uh, but anyways, John, great question. Thank you so much for asking it. Our next question comes from Chef Eric. And Chef Eric is asking, what would be an ideal seeding for the White Sox? If they finished with the second seed, they would face the Twins, even though the White Sox would have home field advantage. 
Not saying they should aim lower, but it is interesting. They have a good chance of facing an American League Central team in the first round. The Twins, Indians, dare I say Tigers, uh, should they hold their first place position? Well, you know, I, I kind of hope that they don't play a central team just because of the novelty. Um, you know, speaking of uh, the way things used to be and such, one of the cool things this year, and I, I wouldn't want to see it permanent, but I'm just enjoying it this year, is just how the White Sox won't play so many teams. And when it gets to the postseason, you know, it's a mystery. And, and you know, it gets back to the way the World Series was before interleague play and, and why Hawk Harrelson never paid attention to the National League, just because there was no reason to. And, and... Uh, White Sox fans really don't have a reason to pay attention to the East and West because they don't matter. And that's kind of cool. <laughs> like, I just like, I like that it, it's so concentrated and, and, and the, the business teams need to take care of is so limited that it's unique. And I'm enjoying that. I wouldn't want to see it being permanent, but it's just a, a cool wrinkle that I find uh, kind of fascinating. Uh, so for that reason, I wouldn't want to see them face the Indians or twins just because I want to see them face a new opponent and, and just have that complete mystery and have these teams match up with their rosters and be just completely speculative. And, and you know, we have these prod- podcast previews and series previews on Sox Machine, and we're just guessing because they haven't scored off all year long, especially if we're talking about like a, uh, a grapefruit league team. <laughs> they haven't even seen them in the spring. So I think that would be cool. So I'm hoping, you know, no AL Central matchup, at least initially. But when it comes to like seeding and, and teams that scare me, uh, I think the only ones that do are the Indians because of their right-handed pitching staff and, and good ones and you know, Shane Bieber being a big part of it. And also the Rays, just because of how modular they are and how they can just attack you from so many lineup spots and so many rotation spots and so many bullpen spots. I, I don't think they're a comfortable matchup for any team, especially like if injury strikes, like they're just so great at making it up as they go along that I don't like the idea of facing them in any kind of series, no matter what time you meet them or how they, uh, how they get to you. It just seems like they, they're so good at just uh, adjusting to what they have and being hard to scout. And then they don't really leave their players open to weaknesses. Uh, they're really good at hiding weaknesses the way like Rick Renteria sometimes is not. So I think that's why I wouldn't want to face them either. But otherwise I think the other teams uh, especially like if the Indians or sorry, the twins are banged up and the Yankees are, are banged up and the Astros and such that if uh, you know, they're, they, they come into the postseason limping, then I don't think the white Sox are worse off. I think they still have to prove themselves to feel comfortable against the Yankees, <laughs> but uh, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't fear them. I don't think I would just say, let's see how it plays out, but I don't think it would be like a bad, bad matchup on paper. Well, Chef Eric, thank you so much for your question. And I'm just happy that the White Sox will be in the postseason. Um, but yes. I don't know if they can hunt down Tampa for the number one seed. But as the second or third seed, they'd still be in a good position. I'd almost prefer that they're, they they win the American League Central so they don't have to face the Rays in a five-game series if they win that opening round, if that makes sense. I'd rather... Yeah. <laughs> Rather have them face, you know, either Oakland or uh, whoever comes out as that sixth seed in, in that situation. Yeah, I think I want to see the White Sox avoid the Twins just because I really want to see the Twins play the Yankees. <laughs> well, if the Yankees are the eighth seed and they can knock off the Rays as the number one seed and have that faux underdog storyline attached to them, and if the Twins is the seventh seed. 
win as far as uh, against, well, no, they wouldn't face each other. No. The Twins would have to get to the 4 or 5 seed in order for that situation to work because they're not reseeding after the first round. Yep. So there is the possibility. They just have to leap Cleveland and finish behind the White Sox, which is totally possible. But right now the Twins are sitting at third place in the American League Central and they would be the seventh seed and they'd be facing the White Sox in the first round of the playoffs of the season ended today. But again, Chef Eric, thank you so much for your question. And that will do it for this week for P.O. Sox. Thanks to everyone that submitted questions for this episode. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle on a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. And you can also help support us at patreon.com slash Sox Machine, where you can become a friend of the podcast, where you get ad-free versions of the show. You also get an opportunity to ask additional questions to our guests. For example, in this episode, Jim Callis answered uh, a few questions from our Patreon supporters. So you guys got 15 extra minutes of content from Jim Callis. Our Patreon supporters get additional P.O. Sox questions that Jim and I answer for every single episode. So if you enjoy the show and you want more content from us, go to patreon.com slash machine uh, to sign up at the $2 tier or better to get that version of the podcast. We still have coffee mugs, right, Jim? Correct. And uh, one thing, I just want to tie up a loose end. I did not find another team that had the top three finishers for wins above replacement in the National League, just the 1902 Pirates. So didn't want to leave anybody hanging. But yeah, plenty plenty of coffee mugs uh, still for either sale on the store or through supporting us on on Patreon. And also I'll mention that for... uh, we have coffee mugs for new supporters at the $10 tier and also for supporters at the $5 and $10 tiers, uh, whether existing or new, we have promo codes for merch. So people who support the five and $10 tiers can purchase from the store at uh, discounted rates. Nice. Nice. So there you go. Hopefully that is a, that's enough for you guys to help support us on Patreon. And for those that do today, thank you guys so much for your support. It goes a long way to support us as far as on Socks Machine. If you also want more swag, we do have Socks Machine shirts for sale. They're $25, includes shipping. We are out of stock for mediums, very popular size, but we do have those on back order. And as soon as we get those into our hands, we'll update as far as our inventory. But for those that wear smalls, larges, extra larges, extra extra large shirts we definitely have those in stock if you like a socks machine shirt we're hearing good things for those that that have gotten them they are soft high quality uh go to socksmachine.com and you can buy your socks machine shirt today and again that will do it for this episode of the socks machine podcast thank you so much for listening if you just discovered the show you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and the socks machine podcast is a production of socksmachine.com your home for all things chicago white Sox baseball alongside jim margulis i'm josh nelson thanks for listening Introducing Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer, blending the smooth, creamy nitro taste of Guinness with hints of coffee, chocolate, and caramel. Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer, your new favorite part of the day. Look for it where Guinness is sold. Must be 21 and over to purchase. Please enjoy responsibly. Diageo Beer Company, New York, New York. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran. 
Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.